Unorthodox with the Angry Behavior Analyst is a relief valve for stifled thoughts, theories, and opinions related to social science. Unorthodox is unfiltered, uncensored, and most importantly, uncancelable. The Angry Behavior Analyst is all triggers, no warnings. We start episode two with a story called the sugar cookie story. The sugar cookie drill is a drill that is conducted within a military setting where instructors are excessively thorough in detecting the uniforms of the soldiers that line up. So they look at the hat to see if there's any wrinkles in it. They look at any wrinkles in the clothing. They want to make sure the buckle is perfectly shined. And if there is a single smudge on the buckle or so much as one hair that is a millimeter out of place, the soldiers are made to jump into the ocean, roll around in the sand until they're covered head to toe and go about their day looking like a sugar cookie. They're meant to execute every single task that they're set out to do, cold, wet, and uncomfortable. Well, this sounds like a cruel task. To some camps, it might seem cruel. To some camps, it might be an overly excessive use of punishment or discomfort. To others, it might simply be a great way to build grit and resilience and even acceptance and tolerance of feelings that are difficult for us to learn how to tolerate until we expose ourselves to them. The actual purpose of the sugar cookie drill was that no soldier was ever going to finish training without being a sugar cookie at some point in time. The purpose was that you were never going to succeed because that's how life tends to work is that life isn't always fair and you can prepare and equip yourself with all of the skills that are necessary to succeed. And sometimes you simply will not. And as we see in parenting and therapy movements now with overly affirming and overly validating therapeutic approaches, approaches and techniques and tactics We are snuggling and swaddling children and even adults in a tattered quilt of gentle parenting that seeks to remove any form of adversity or threat or discomfort. The overparenting movement began years ago, around the 70s, when kidnapping was a real thing and kidnapping was happening very frequently and parents were scared to death that their children couldn't play outside anymore because there were so many insane people that were lurking in the bushes, Michael Myers style. And at that time, forensics and the police force and the FBI were a lot less sophisticated than it is now 50 years later. So many of these people were at large following kidnapping or even assault on a lot of children and adults. This overparenting, overprotective safetyism movement kind of faded over the years and we saw a bigger rise in play in kids. So kids were still allowed to go out and play, ride their bikes unattended, go to the park, 10 minute walk away unattended. And 
that built a lot of independence in our kids. It taught them skills that you could only learn if you are left to some degree unattended. Nowadays, aside from a few states who recently um, appealed this, but nowadays, if a child is seen at a park without a parent, the parent can actually be charged with neglect. In a world with all of the resources, all of the protection, all of the antecedent proactive measures that you could take to ensure safety, and of course that doesn't 100% guarantee that safety will be assured every single time or sealed every single time, it seems very backwards to go back to a place of coddling and making sure that children and adults are in this protective emotional bubble wrap from anything that could possibly poke them or make them so much as stumble. The gentle parenting and the gentle therapy have become these bizarre forms of kind of a social contagion that have caught on incredibly quickly much of it because of the language that's used. Who doesn't like flowerly, fl- flowerly affi- affirming language? It's it feels good to tell people that we are child affirming therapists, or we validate and affirm your child's feelings, or we ensure that we equip them with skills and we set them up only for success. But if we go back to the sugar cookie story, which is a much more accurate picture of how life actually tends to go, it's a very misleading idea to tell children that they will only contact success as long as they try their best. And that's not to say that we tell people not to try their best. Of course you should. But children are naturally resistant and resilient and pliable human beings that are capable of a lot more than we give them credit for. So maybe the therapy itself shouldn't be so much focused around the dodging of discomfort or the taking away of distress and the setting up for success. Maybe we should be focusing more on building opportunities to tolerate the inevitable times that we're going to fail and the inevitable times that we're going to stumble regardless of how hard we try. If we put in every shred of our being into something, sometimes, oftentimes, I would argue, it doesn't always work. And that's not to say that it doesn't lead us to other outcomes that we wouldn't have stumbled upon had we not even tried in the first place. But it's worth noting that there is oftentimes more learning to be had in the challenges, the struggles, the barriers, and the failures than the success itself. Coddling children makes them weak. Coddling children makes them fragile. Coddling therapists, coddling clinicians and adults handicaps them. It makes them feel as if they cannot possibly handle anything without a a wingman or the emotional right-hand man to manage their, their distressed feelings that come up when difficult situations arise. 
most of being alive is some degree of a difficult situation. Much of our day-to-day, especially if we are people that are working for others, much of it is learning how to navigate and deal with highly aversive or infuriating or frustrating situations, but still functioning regardless because we have to. When we teach this perceived victimhood model and when we teach people that there is a threat around every corner, always keep your eyes peeled and be in a hypervigilant state, we're essentially teaching people that they need to be on guard and that at any given point in time, it will be because of an external circumstance that we do not succeed. And danger is very much a threat. Dangerous situations that that threaten our survival, of course we should be vigilant to those things. Of course we should respond in the biological way that was built within us to respond to a threat to our survival. But we're not cavemen anymore. We're not getting chased down by bears. We're not getting chased down by tigers with the only form of protection being a wooden spear that took us nine days to carve with a dull rock. We have all of the capabilities and the abilities and skills and measures and tools now more than any other point in time to handle a potentially dangerous situation. The perceived threat served us very well when we were cavemen, because that was really the only time in history when there were constant threats to our survival. So much as wanting to go out and get water or food might mean that we would come face to face with a grizzly bear or trying to hunt down a hog or something to eat that would last us two weeks might mean that we get attacked by the warthog itself. And we didn't have household security that was able to tell us when we were being approached from behind. We didn't have cell phones to alert the police or the paramedics or in a hospital that we've been injured. We had to figure out ways to manage all of these things ourselves. And if if cavemen were treated the way that we treat human beings now, we would not be as emotionally and cognitively and technologically and medically as evolved as we are now. So the cavemen times and our survival mechanisms within those periods served us well, but we're still using that same biological response, the fight, flight, freeze response to very minor situations and we all have our situation we all have our perception of what minor is that's a subjective term depending on what we've experienced what our learning history is and how we've handled difficulty in the past so we're not trying to necessarily strip people of their feelings or their response to a situation because we can't define for them if it's minor or if it's major. But there are obvious things like being disagreed with, arguing with someone, being called out on our mistakes. Those things are not traumatic. 
They might sting a little, they might bruise our ego, but those things in and of themselves are not traumatic whatsoever. And this gentle parenting movement and gentle therapy and affirming therapy practices have become terrifyingly efficient at teaching cognitive distortions and teaching us to indulge the 175 biases that we have as human beings. Every bias that we have serves us in some sort of way, oftentimes in the sense that it plays everyone else out to be the one that's wrong and us to be correct. If we think of everything as trauma, even things like being disagreed with or called out on a mistake we've made or hearing something offensive, and our sense that this is truly traumatic is affirmed, we are only rewarding excruciating sensitivity and cowardice. We are not teaching people that I know you're hurt. I know this was hard to hear, but I also believe that you can handle it. If we look at the definition of trauma itself, when we think of trauma, we don't think of a disagreement. We don't even think of a breakup that went really poorly. We think of horrible things that occur in our lives that a very small amount of people actually have to go through. We think of people that were directly affected by 9-11. We think of war and terrorism and war refugees and sexual assault and, and rape and violence and murder. These are all highly traumatic events that could happen to a family or a person. I don't think anybody that is a true trauma survivor would take very kindly to the idea that being disagreed with falls under the same umbrella as trauma. And what's even more difficult about this concept that everything, an everyday experience that's no more than a nuisance is traumatic, is that it really does take away the only language that true trauma survivors have to describe an awful experience that they went through. And Oftentimes, trauma survivors don't go around marketing the fact that they're trauma survivors. Most people that have gone through a horrendous experience and suffer the lifelong effects of it, an inherently negative lifelong effect of it, they typically don't use that as a conversation starter, or they typically don't add it to their bio on Instagram. It's something that happened to them that is incredibly unfortunate and oftentimes completely out of their control. So this is a nice segue into the helicopter parenting movement, as it was called, when there were a lot of kidnapping cases um, and child abuse cases back in the 70s, 80s, and not so much the 90s, but we'll refer to a period of 20 to 30 years ago-ish. The helicopter parenting movement, we all know what a helicopter mom is. That became something that nowadays would be a meme or a Twitter post, but the helicopter mom is always hovering and she is always around with her propellers blowing away any single stressor or emotional trigger that any human being would potentially have to contact or potentially have to stumble across. The helicopter parenting, and now we can actually say the helicopter therapy, posits that if something is not 100% safe, 
then it must be dangerous. If something is not 100% stress-free, then it must be traumatizing. If someone does not 100% agree with your ideal or your perspective, they must be against you. You can see how difficult it is to try to teach children to be independent and to try to teach adults how to regain some resilience when everything is so black and white and everything is so polarized. There isn't really a gray area anymore with these types of helicopter parenting mind frames. It's either completely good or it's completely bad. And treating children under this idea of thought leads to teaching cognitive distortions. It leads people to engage in more emotional reasoning. When I say emotional reasoning, I'm referring to coming up with a justification because of how we feel versus taking responsibility for our actions when we have responded disproportionately or we have overreacted. Everything becomes we are a victim to our circumstances, even though we have full license to take responsibility for our actions. Parents and clinicians want to be friends or allies, that's a new word, with their children and their clients instead of authority figures. Our job is not to be a child's friend. You cannot be a parent and also be your son or daughter's friend. You cannot be an effective clinician and also be a learner's friend because friends often struggle to disagree along lines of difference. They band together because they're a nice source of ego boosting for us. Our friends are our cheerleaders in a lot of ways and our parents can be too. But when we over cheerlead and when we feel a need to celebrate things that we're simply supposed to do, it takes away our own opportunity to build motivation within ourselves and build our own sort of success system. When we're constantly relying on this external source of validation or affirmation and these calls to authority for all of these reasons that we feel we can't handle on our own. Morally dependent children grow into morally dependent adults. They don't just off. They, they often don't grow out of it, especially if this behavior has been rewarded for years and even decades at a time. When we see discipline as harmful I haven't even heard the word discipline used in a very long time because of the negative connotation it now has. But discipline is a normal, necessary piece of what it means to be a parent and even a normal and necessary piece of what it means to be a clinician or a teacher or any adult figure that is working with children. By discipline, I do not mean corporal punishment. I do not mean outlandish behaviors that are disproportionate to the mistake of the child. I'm referring simply to the fact that there are consequences following inappropriate behavior. And oftentimes those consequences will not feel good and they're not going to be fun. And they are incredibly challenging for 
parents to have to implement. But that's how we teach people what they can do versus what they cannot do. How you are to behave in one circumstance versus how you are to behave in another circumstance. When we attempt to mesh all of these circumstances and contexts and people together in the name of affirming people because we think they're going to be traumatized otherwise, all we're doing is creating spineless blobfish. And people will say, Kayla, that sounds really harsh. And it might be a little bit harsh, but in a world where we force anything remotely negative out of the picture because we only want to be inundated with affirming words and and positive statements and cute infographics on Instagram, I think a little bit of harsh reality is necessary for clinicians, parents, and children. Discipline is not harmful. Discipline will not squelch or crush your child's spirit or creativity. Discipline will serve to teach your child what is right, what is wrong, and will put them in a position where they're better able to navigate the world on their own without constantly needing an adult. It's been documented ad nauseum that children and adults and all humans for that matter are highly resistant beings. We are capable of tolerating extreme forms of aversion. We've all seen the stories of people that were able to survive in the Serengeti for 60 days, living only off of a rotting boar's skeleton and drinking our own urine. We've heard about the story of, of 127 hours when a man caught between rocks had to saw his own arm off to survive. And you know what he did? He survived. That might be something that is traumatic to this individual because that is a very unlikely, painful, highly aversive life circumstance that many of us will never find ourselves in. Those things might be considered trauma. Bear Grylls, a person that his career is being a survivalist, I don't know that we could say that Bear Grylls is traumatized. I've never heard him claim that he's been traumatized. I've heard him claim that he will never do things again because of how difficult or scary certain situations he purposely put himself in were. But I don't think that going through something that demanding physically, emotionally, and mentally always means that we're going to be traumatized by it. So that's an important distinction to make when we do talk to our clients and our kids that high levels of aversion or emotional labor or mental and physical and emotional demand does not always mean that trauma is in tow. We might be acutely affected if we look at the definition of trauma, which says that there are lifelong effects following this negative life event, we might be acutely affected by something uh, like a breakup or a divorce. And for weeks or months or maybe even a year or a couple of years, it takes us a while to bounce back and recover. That doesn't 
necessarily mean that it's always traumatic. It means that we went through something that was incredibly difficult, incredibly painful, and we would not recommend to anybody going through it, but we were able to survive. And a lot of times, because I'm a strong believer in what does not kill you actually does indeed make you stronger, we prove to ourselves just what we're able to handle. But when we jump in right away to make sure that a child that is crying because they're upset or distressed by a seemingly trivial circumstance, when we jump in feeling the need to validate and affirm their feelings and swiftly remove them from the event that they found to be so triggering, all we're teaching them is that there's no need to reflect on your own behavior because what you're feeling is completely valid. And I don't agree with this idea that all feelings are valid. I think that's just another empty, hollow kind of term that we use that feels really flowery and feels really good on the ears. And it might even make us feel a little bit fuzzy inside, but it doesn't serve to positively affect any sort of behavior change or or mindset changes, if you will. The definition of valid states that it has a sound basis in logic or fact. Our feelings are not always logical. Our feelings are not always rational. They don't always make sense. Sometimes they're not even coherent. It would be ridiculous to think that every emotion or feeling that pops into our head demands immediate verification and authorization from another person. But that's what we're doing now. That's what therapy has become. We feel that we need to affirm every feeling because you know what? All feelings are valid. We cannot control feelings, which I agree with, by the way. I agree that we cannot control feelings, but that does not mean that they are valid. It simply means that they're there. They exist. I'm not sure the need for the labels like valid or affirmed. Sometimes we need to point out to people that, hey, you know, that thing you just said actually is completely irrational, or you really overreacted to that situation, Kayla, or what you just said to me, I can see why you might be upset, but I just don't see the reason as to why you are so upset by it. We all need to have some sort of either person, circumstance, or situation remind us and knock us back on our feet to bring us to a place of reflection where we could actually figure out if what we're feeling and responding to is accurate, warranted, or if we're completely off base. But we can't do that if we're only being affirmed. We're taking a the customer is always right approach to parenting and therapy. And we even see it in schools a lot of times with, with all of these ways that teachers simply affirm and go along with whatever a student says without so much as questioning it because that might trigger them or that might endanger their emotional existence. And a parent's job is not to be a child's ally or a friend, and it's not to always be a cheerleader. 
a clinician's job is not to affirm and validate every single thing that a child says or believes. When people and families come to therapy, they do so because what they're currently doing is ineffective. So if if our next move is to say, wow, all of these interventions you've tried, all of these ways of being that you have attempted are not working, I'm here to affirm all of those things for you. That's not being a clinician. That's just simply being a passive human. And maybe there is a good intention in there. Maybe we want to make people feel that we understand them and we hear them. But when people seek help from clinicians and when children seek guidance from adults, it's often the difficult things that we need to hear that will be the most helpful versus the instant gratification of simply feeling good because we're told that we're right. Imagine going to see a psychotherapist or a psychologist because you're struggling with debilitating anxiety. As someone that has debilitating panic attacks, and I'm not talking about the 2022 version of an anxiety attack where you think about something for 15 seconds and you get a little worried. I'm talking about I was a person who ended up in the ER because I thought I was having a heart attack when in fact I was having a panic attack. So the physiological symptoms for me become so immense and intense that it keeps me from driving or engaging in a conversation or carrying out very regular tasks of being a human being. If I went to a therapist and told them, I have horrendous panic attacks. They happen most commonly when I drive. I'm I'm oftentimes scared to death to even drive anywhere or leave my house. Imagine paying $300 an hour for someone to tell you, Kayla, that sounds just awful and so triggering. I think you should just stay home then. If it's going to be that hard for you, then just stay home. Stay home where... Panic attacks happen a lot less than when you're out in public or in situations where you can't escape. We don't want to encounter any of that. Stay home. What would my quality of life be if I indulged this type of thinking? If I haven't been doing all the things that I continue to do because all of these panic attacks started for me 15 years ago, I wouldn't have a podcast. I wouldn't have been able to take the board exam. I wouldn't have driven 65 miles to go help a family pro bono. I wouldn't have been able to do all of the things that have built an immense amount of resilience and grit in me had I listened to a therapist that told me it was best for me to stay home and avoid things that could potentially trigger me. When we treat children and even adults in the same manner as that example, we're training them to believe that there is something fundamentally wrong with them. And this fundamental error in their biological makeup is a justification for avoiding anything that is stressful. And it's almost used as a weapon towards other people. Well, I'm fundamentally flawed. I'm very the error button, there are error pop-ups that show up if you brought up my DNA tile. 
So me avoiding difficult things is justified, which could not be further from the truth. This is perfectly in line with this rise in safetyism, the need to make students and learners feel safe ideologically, feel safe emotionally, mentally, feel safe physically. Safety has become the greatest virtue and value. When, yeah, safety is important. Safety is a baseline for us. But again, we're not living in times when cavemen lived. Most of us don't have to actually concern ourselves with extreme unsafe circumstances. The invention of safe spaces and the invention of literal scenarios or locations where we could remove ourselves because of our hurt feelings was one of the worst things that was ever invented. And when I refer to safe spaces, I'm not necessarily referring to a calm down corner uh, that a lot of schools use or that clinics employ in uh, within their center or their program. I'm referring to universities that literally have what is called a safe space so that when students are offended by something a teacher says, they can complain and run to a literal space that is quote unquote safe so that they no longer have to be exposed to something that just is so emotionally damaging that they can't seem to handle it. How are we to learn to handle any challenge, any form of adversity, find a job, Find a romantic partner, break up with a romantic partner, have a deep conversation if we have not begun the process of even exposing ourselves remotely to small shreds of discomfort. It will not happen because any potential slight against us, not danger, not potentially traumatic, any slight like a rude word or an offensive statement or an image that we don't like could set off the same mechanisms as if it were a grizzly bear. If we can't teach people to engage with others across lines of difference, all we're teaching people is to engage in distorted thinking and faulty justifications for their behavior just in case they might be harmed by it. To quote a great book, The Coddling of the American Mind by Greg Lukanioff and Jonathan Haidt, where they studied extensively the rise of safe spaces and trigger warnings and avoidance of anything hard. I have three quotes here from actual students, and these are legitimate. These are not made up. Quote number one, if so-and-so is allowed to speak, there will be broken bodies on our side, and I might lose my right to exist. So if a certain speaker, because of whatever material they're presenting, is allowed to speak within the university setting that this student was at, they're claiming that this person is endangering their right to exist. What even is a right to exist? Because as far as I'm concerned, 
people can call you names, say anything they want to you, behave any way towards you as long as it's not physical violence or a physical altercation and you will still exist as a human being. You will still be standing there and you still have full capability to go on about your day. Hearing something we don't like does not inhibit us from doing all of the things that we need to. Quote number two, asking people to maintain peaceful dialogue with those who legitimately do not think their lives matter is a violent act. A violent act. Peaceful dialogue is violent. And this idea of trying to define for other people if they believe our lives matter, we can't decide that for other people. We can't ever get into the mind of another human being and determine if they believe our lives matter or our lives do not matter. And quite honestly, if another person doesn't believe that our life matters, does that mean that words construct reality? Does that mean that we're going to go poof into thin air and our existence will truly be erased? No, that's not how life works. (laughs) Someone that doesn't believe your life matters to them, they're entitled to not think your life matters. And it's not violent. It's only violent if you make it violent, which is a great pivot into the third and final quote. Physically violent actions, if used to shut down speech that is deemed hateful, are not quote-unquote acts of violence, but rather they are quote-unquote acts of self-defense. So you see how we indulge these distortions and we essentially teach people to justify completely cruel and oftentimes disproportionate reacting. Physically violent actions, so hurting another person, if used to shut down speech that is deemed hateful, number one, who gets to deem speech hateful? Who gets to decide what's hateful? No one human being can really be the arbiter of the human language or the English language because What's hateful to one person may be hilarious to another person. What's hateful to one group may be an aloof concept to another group. It, it, It just might roll off their back and they will make nothing of it. But apparently, if someone... Uh, And when I say someone, I'm mostly referring to those that make use of safe spaces and trigger warnings. (laughs) If they find something hateful, which can be something simply like, I disagree, that's considered hateful these days, it is an act of self-defense to physically assault this person because just what they said was so incredibly hateful. If that's not a cognitive distortion and if that is not concerning to us, I'm not sure what the purpose of an educational or therapeutic institution would be. Microaggressions, which are indirect, subtle, or unintentional discrimination against members of a quote-unquote marginalized group, and trigger warnings are another wave that was employed not long after the, the safe space movement. And microaggressions are essentially things that we hear that are offensive, that take on this word aggression. Hearing something that we don't like is not aggressive. Again, 
words matter. So throwing around the word trauma as if it means nothing, throwing around the word aggressive as if it means nothing, words matter. So the the term microaggressions is a little bit of a, a misnomer if we're actually referring to offensive language. Because again, we're allowed and perfectly able to go about our day as we please following hearing something that is offensive or even something that hurts our feelings. That doesn't inhibit us from doing everything that we're capable of doing. And it doesn't inhibit us from doing things that we need to do that are aligned with our values and our goals. When we continue trying to accommodate all of these avoidances of adversity and all of these cries for trigger warnings, we're only making people more sensitive to the inevitable situations where they will face something that is triggering, something that is traumatizing even, and something that is challenging. And when we first experience those things as children, how do we respond? Typically with a tantrum, typically with crying and maybe even flopping on the floor and running to our mom. Does this sound familiar? Because it sounds familiar to me. And I'm not only referring to children. This is the type of behavior that's actually happening with adults that are proponents of this gentle movement where we feel the need to affirm everybody regardless of what they're feeling or what the situation is without question. We see these very rigid black and white binary forms of thinking in adults and clinicians now because we are almost insulted by the fact that some people are not claiming to be traumatized by something that is difficult. (laughs) We feel that it is some sort of encroachment on our line of thinking if another person claims that they went through something difficult, but they did in fact find a learning opportunity in it, or they went through something difficult without feeling the need to announce it to everybody, right? How can we look down on people that will not buy into this movement? How can we look down on people that choose to take the higher road and treat a horrendous situation as something that actually built emotional and intellectual grit within them? If we go way back to kindergarten, when we first heard the phrase, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words may never hurt me. Let's tease this apart a little bit. Number one, of course, words hurt. Words sting and words cut, and they oftentimes can cause more pain than being physically hurt. That's just kind of the nature of what it means to be an emotional and cognitively built being. But, 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 it does not imply that we can or should take any verbal slight against us and treat it as if it was a little a literal knife or a literal weapon. The purpose of sticks and stones may break my bones was trying to teach children that even if somebody does say something mean to you, if you hear cruel words, if your feelings are hurt, you have the capability And it is your responsibility to ignore it or defend yourself 
or maybe do both and continue about your day regardless of the situation. We don't see a whole lot of that anymore. We don't see a whole lot of crude and hateful names being thrown at us without people turning it into a global crisis or claiming to be traumatized by it. I'm wondering how different therapy and parenting would be and how different our our kids would be and their behavior if we brought back a lot of these golden rules that we have now deemed as unacceptable or even dangerous to people. Because conflicts are now handled through third parties and calls to authority and higher ups and cries for these trigger warnings and safe spaces and punishment for microaggressions, which only makes people feel that an external source is required and that they're entitled to have a problem fixed for them. An individual, a child that struggles with adversity will grow into an adult that struggles to handle adversity. And if that's not the theme of 2022, I'm not quite sure what is. Which brings me to the conclusion of the sugar cookie drill. We can prepare. We can over-prepare. We can rehearse, practice, research, educate, and drive ourselves into the ground preparing for something. But life is not always fair. Sometimes, no matter how much we equip ourselves with all of the tools that we believe that we need, we're always going to end up as sugar cookies at one point or another. It's simply how life goes. On that note, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. You can hop in and leave me a review, but if you don't, I promise you, I will not be offended. We'll see you next time. Ha, ha, ha.